So Psalm 115. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory, because of your love and faithfulness. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven, but he does whatever pleases him. But their idols are silver and gold, made by human hands. They have mouths, but cannot speak. Eyes, but cannot see. They have ears, but cannot hear. Noses, but cannot smell. They have hands, but cannot feel. Feet, but cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. All you Israelites, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. House of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You who fear him, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. The Lord remembers us and will bless us. He will bless his people Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, small and great alike. May the Lord cause you to flourish, both you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to the human race. It is not the dead who praise the Lord, those who go down to the place of silence. It is we who extol the Lord, both now and forevermore. Praise the Lord. Thank you. Well, first of all, I, I want to say thank you for all the support we've had over many years in, from, IF, from uh, Highfield since, um, actually virtually since the church started many years ago. We were living in France at the time when they took us on board. We've appreciated the financial support, but actually the friendships uh, and the council and the prayers of many people uh, much more. They're, they're, it may be that not everybody knows there's been a prayer meeting often on Mondays, Monday mornings, for missionaries around the world. And often I sensed, particularly when I was in dangerous situations in Peru and Burundi and Rwanda and a few other places, the, the support of those who, a small group of people who were praying, uh, often sensed that um, God was answering their prayers and helping us as we were traveling. Well, uh, I'm not going away, but as a thank you uh, this morning, I want to offer a free book for everybody who's here. Uh, that's probably because I can't sell them anymore. Nobody wants them. Uh, this one uh, uh, recounts many stories from around the world from the time I was General Secretary of IFES, Shining Like Stars, which, of course, is a phrase from Philippians chapter 2. The other one, which was published um, uh, last year, I think, uh, uh, my own background is, in, is, is a student of uh, history, European history in university. And this is a book I've been wanting to write for many years. It's a review of the missionary vision of uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin, which is very exciting in my view. Now, both books, I think, are retailing about eight pounds, but you can take one free this morning. Uh, if you've got one, take the other one. If you have both, feel free to take one and give it to somebody else who's not here. Um, I think there are about 100 copies of each downstairs as you leave, so feel free to take them. Uh, I have been using part of the, um, the, our time in COVID exclusion for uh, more writing, and I've just finished uh, what, uh, a book that I really enjoyed very much, which is on the 100-year 100, 100 history of student ministry in Wales. Now, Geraint Fielder wrote a book called Excuse Me, Mr. Davis, Hallelujah, 
covering the first 55, 60 years. And we've abridged that book. And then I've written up a section of the last 45 years. Some of the people in this church are mentioning it, including Dave. And uh, some events which occurred here in Mission Weeks are mentioning it. And, um, and some other individuals. And you'll be amazed at the impact that some of these people have. And some of these stories, they're absolutely fantastic. Uh, and I've just been reading all these reports the last few months. I've just been hibernating away. Uh, just completed it. So it'll be published um, sometime later this year to, to, uh, to correspond with the 100th anniversary celebrations of student ministry in Wales, which will be in the next academic year. The other book I'm writing, I'm half, is uh, called Around the World in 40 Years, which is, uh, which is stories of um, God at work and some of the remarkable people uh, I've met, not only in student work, but in the life of the church globally over the last 40, 45 years. Uh, when I started working with IFES, we were working in 62 countries. It's over 160 now, 40 years later. And uh, I think I visited and spoken in student ministries in more than 120 of those countries around the world. So there are lots of stories that I heard of God at work in different places, and some of them will be recounted uh, in that book. That will come out later in the year, published by tenofthose.com. And there's a third one, which has uh, just gone to press, and that's on proclamation in the student world today, if you want to get hold of that. That's published by Langham uh, Publishers, uh, along with other contributors. Uh, so feel free to take uh, a, copy of, uh, each of the, a copy of the book uh, afterwards, if you wish. Now, I'd like to draw your attention to the psalm that we just had read to us. I'm going to focus principally on the first verse, actually, we don't really know who the author of this psalm was. It, it, it smells as if it's written by David, but we're not clear that it was written by David. And um, it's a psalm which has a, a tripartite focus. It's looking back, first of all, at God's acts in history, in the life of the Jews. Then secondly, the psalmist calls us to look around at the world that we're in. And thirdly, calls us to look forward and up to God for his help. Don't worry if I spend most of my time on the first point. Looking back, I'll summarize the second and third points quickly uh, towards the end. Uh, but I want to focus very much first on looking backwards. Someone said, it's important to look at the past and understand the past as long as we don't just live there. So we're not to be stuck in the past, but we are to learn lessons from there. And of course, this was certainly true in uh, in biblical times because the Jews put stones in the river Jordan, 12 stones to remind them of God's acts in helping them to cross the Jordan River. And in the New Testament, Peter falling over himself says, remember not to forget. <laughs> uh, um, uh, so there's this reference in scripture to remembering God's acts in history. Now we're going through a phase where history is not taught as much in schools and even many Christians are not interested uh, in history. There have been secular writers and thinkers who have echoed this. Uh, Henry uh, Ford said history is bunk, famously. Steve Turner, a poet, said history repeats itself. It has to because nobody ever listens. But it came home to me strikingly some years ago when I was visiting the student work in Israel and a student, uh, a Jewish student, uh, a believer from a Jewish background, took me to, um, to a museum. Uh, in uh, Jerusalem 
And as we were entering into the museum, I said to him, I love visiting museums and galleries wherever I go in the world because it gives me a sense of the history of the culture. An important thing to do if you want to understand the culture, not just going to the beaches. And uh, he shocked me by saying, I'm not interested in history at all. I'm only interested in the present. And I was somewhat stunned by that because the museum we were in was the history of the Holocaust. And I thought, isn't it amazing that this young guy is not interested in the history of these profound uh, events which impacted his whole country? How can you understand your culture if you have no historical uh, awareness? Uh, Martin Luther, again to quote him, one of my heroes said, there's nothing so short as the Christian's memory. And so many problems we have in the Christian life are because we forget God's acts in history, not only in the history of the church, but in our own lives and in the lives of other believers. Now, I haven't got a PowerPoint, so if you want to if you want to follow this, you'll need to either take notes or listen to the recording afterwards. But having an historical awareness, looking back is important for at least four reasons. First, it reminds us of our identity and where we've come from. John Lennox, the um, famous mathematician, We'll be speaking here in late September. Uh, said to me once, if you don't know where you come from, you won't know who you are, and you certainly won't know where you're supposed to be going. I was intrigued. Whenever I brought international students to my family home when I was a student, my mother never asked them the question other students asked, what are you studying? Or even where do you come from? My mother used to ask, uh, who do you belong to? And where did you grow up? Two completely different questions, because from her context, the roots of the individual, the familial background, were very important, much more important than what they were studying, in terms of shaping the identity of those individuals. Now, we're losing a bit of that uh, today, trying to understand the background and the history of individuals. So, a historical awareness gives us a sense of our identity. Secondly, it reminds us of the power of God, the sovereign power of God. And his promises fulfilled. I'll return to that in a moment. Thirdly, an historical awareness uh, can inspire us and give us confidence as we see the kind of people God uses. And fourthly, it provokes humility and worship and thanksgiving. It's very important if we see God at work in our lives or we observe him at work that we acknowledge it is God who did this, not us. We were the partners or he saw fit to use us. I like Augustine's quote from the 6th century that um, without God we cannot, but without us he will not. God is sovereign, he can work wherever he wants, but he chooses uh, to use his children and his people. But it's absolutely foundational that wherever we see God at work, opening doors for the advance of the gospel, we acknowledge it's not us who have done this. It is our privilege to observe it. As I look at the growth of student ministry around the world, I would say my two privileges have been, one, I was an observer of what God was doing in opening doors. And two, God saw fit to bring me into contact with some of the most remarkable Christian workers and leaders around the world. And that was a privilege. It was nothing to do with my own doing. It was God who opened these doors. Now then, let me go back to this second point. That when we have an historical awareness, it's a reminder of the power of God and promises fulfilled. One of the most striking examples of this I I observe personally 
was in 1989. Many of you are too young to remember it, but those who are over about 50-ish will remember it. That was the fall of the Berlin Wall. Now, for nine years before then, I was traveling extensively across Europe, trying to help to start student ministries. I couldn't even get a visa to get into most countries. At that time, it seems strange now, but the only country I could enter was Yugoslavia and East Germany, DDR as it was called. Uh, I was refused visas consistently to go into Czech Republic or Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Hungary, Russia. Couldn't get to any of those nations. Suddenly, with the fall of the break of the Berlin Wall, doors opened for the advance of the gospel, the growth, the planting and growth of churches, and alongside that, because usually student work is stronger where there are stronger churches, student work uh, came into existence too. I remember for some years, even before coming into student work, I was with Operation Mobilization for a year. We used to have half nights of prayer, praying around the world for individual countries, like Dave was mentioned there, every Friday night, praying for Albania. And in the 80s, there were three known believers in Albania. Uh, A little group had been started by a group of believers up in Wrexham, in a church there. But there were only three known believers in the country. Today, there are 18,000. I'm going to visit them uh, at the beginning of May for their National Leadership Forum. It's bigger than the Welsh Leadership Forum. They'll have over 200 church leaders at it. Now, all that happened because the door was flung open when the Soviet Union and the communist system disintegrated in the late 1980s, early 1990s. Mongolia was another country. Again, many folks are praying for Mongolia beforehand. I knew three of the six known Mongolian believers in the world before 1989 because they all became Christians while international students in Hungary. We used to come there to to learn English. and We used to send teams in to reach them. Today, Mongolia, get this, sends out more missionaries per head of of uh, people than any other country in the world. It's astonishing. Like the last count, there were more than 40,000 believers in the country and 600 churches. There wasn't one in 1989. Now, all of that was the outflow of the fall of the Berlin Wall and the breakdown of the communist system. Now, we may not have seen much evidence of that here. And sometimes Dave warned us against this. We can be obsessively focused on our cultural context But the 20th century, if we live for another couple hundred years, will be viewed as the time when the church became internationalized and global. There are many countries where the church is vastly larger than they are here. China would be another. Last week, I had a Zoom call with um, 20 senior Chinese leaders uh, in China. They're going through a difficult time at the moment. Nearly all of them were under 50 years of age, and they are the senior leaders in the country. And they told me they were all converted uh, after the Tiananmen Square massacre in 1991. When they lost confidence in the government, many of them were already learning English through people who were teaching English as a foreign language. And 90% of the English language teachers in China at the time were believers. And they were using Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress and the Bible as the text for learning English. This is how many of these key leaders were converted. Some subsequently came out to do research or doctorates outside. Many of them are very bright. But many of these key leaders now are about Dave's age or a little bit older, 45, 50-ish, that kind of age bracket. It's amazing. And today they would say, when I asked them, how would you estimate how many evangelicals, that's Bible-believing Christians, there are in China, there are between one and two million in Britain, probably closer to one. 80 million is what they told me, at a conservative estimate. And it was less than a million in 1991. 
So it's exploded as a consequence. Now, all these are things which God did. They're not what we did. But as we look back, we see how God has opened the door for the advance of the gospel. I could give you many other illustrations in other parts of the world. It is God who makes things grow. And our privilege is sometimes to participate, sometimes to pray, sometimes to observe the wonderful acts of God around the world. That's why it's important to follow Jesus' exhortation to open your eyes, lift up your eyes to see the harvest. Now, we should have a passionate concern for our own culture, but not be dominated by it to the extent that we are not concerned for the advance of God's kingdom uh, around the world. I could say much more about that, but because of time constraints, I'll have to stop there. Let me move on to the other dimension of, uh, of inspiration. God gives us confidence, particularly as we see God using other people who may seem weaker or more fragile or less gifted intellectually or physically or otherwise than, ourse- than ourselves. Often the story of the history of the church is of God using what we might call amateurs, uh, People who are a bit clueless. For example, the first disciples. And often it's like that in the history of the church. God raises up. There are not many mighty. Not many strong. That's why people in student ministry need to be careful. Because sometimes an academic background can lead to arrogance. And we should push that out of sight. Run away from it like the plague, as Michael Green used to say to me. God uses and raises up those who are apparently weak in the eyes of the world to confound the mighty and to bring his gospel to others. I'll just give you one illustration of that. I was in this conference 10 years ago in South Africa, and I'd visited Nepal a couple of times before, but there's been spectacular growth. It's one of the great stories of the 20th century. First missionaries went to Nepal in 1953-54, around about the time I was born. First church started about 10 years later. By 1990, there were figures that are unclear, but there may have been um, 20 of us in the country. Um, now, I heard that there was an explosion in the growth of the church subsequently in the next 20 years. And in this conference, I said to these believers, these church leaders, uh, I hear the church is growing very fast in Nepal, not in every place, but generally across the country. I said, I'm quoting 300,000 believers in the country, up from 20 to 30,000 at the beginning of the 90s. Is that accurate? I don't want to overstate it. They laughed. They said, Lindsay, you can triple that. It's 900,000 plus. And I said, well, how do you account for the growth of the church in Nepal? They said, you'll be amazed at this. In the early 1990s, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, there was repression in the country. It's a Hindu kingdom. Many of the pastors were imprisoned. And uh, rather like Paul in the time of Philippi. And as a consequence, the ordinary believers in the congregations had to gossip the gospel. And that's how the church grew. The pastors were taken out of the way. And the ordinary believers shared the gospel. And I said, well, how do you do it? Well, this one believer was a Pentecostal pastor. He said to me, it's very simple, Lindsay. We just open all the doors and the windows on Sunday morning. And we sing as loud as we can. And people come in off the street. I said, well, we used to call that revival. It's not happening in every part of Nepal. But here, God was using amateurs who had minimal Bible, biblical, and doctrinal teaching. Much less than we do here. I mean, we're rich by comparison in terms of the biblical diet here in Highfields and elsewhere in Wales. But by comparison here with these humble believers who just knew enough, as one believer said to me, Lindsay, if you know enough to be saved, you know enough to tell somebody else how to be saved. And I was quite challenged and rebuked by that one. Well, there's much more that we could say, but the last dimension to looking back is um, humility, worship, 
and thanksgiving. And that's the tone of this first verse in Psalm 115. Not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to your name be the glory. Because all of these things, the growth of the church, the ministry of the so-called amateurs and others, is effective. Why? Because of God's love and mercy and faithfulness. And because God is keeping his promise even today that the earth will be covered by the knowledge of the glory of the Lord and that the gospel will have sway across the world. God has chosen to partner with us and our response must be one of humble turning aside to give thanks to God for his work, worship and joy that this work uh, is growing. Because of God's faithfulness, his mercy, and his covenant love. Now in terms of therefore developing an historical perspective or looking back, it's good to read missionary biographies. Sometimes they can be a bit over the top. They don't mention the weaknesses of some of these missionaries. And the story would be even more powerful if they sometimes did. But um, if we read biographies and read scripture as a book of history and God's acts... Uh, that often can stir joy in our hearts. And I would say at a personal level, not just thinking about the global scene, but if we look back over our own lives, some of us are over 60 like myself, some are over 70, just take a moment to reflect on all the ways that God has impacted your life. Some of you have had godly parents. Take a moment to look back and thank God for their impact on your life. I thank God regularly for my grandmother who shaped me more than anybody else I've ever met. She left school at 13. She could barely write. I had to write signatures for her uh, so she could get her pension. Um, But she influenced me and shaped me more than anybody else. Are there people in your life, whether parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, Sunday school teachers, who God used to shape your life? Turn aside and thank God for those acts of God through those individuals in your personal history. And if they're still alive, please tell them. Don't wait to give the eulogy at their funeral. But they might be encouraged. You don't need to go over the top. Just tell them, sit down and say, I have to tell you, I love you. I thank God for your work in my life. Thank you for your testimony. Thank you for my influence, your influence. I never forget going to Oxford University and meeting loads of students who had been to independent schools who didn't even go home at Christmas because they didn't want to be with their parents. And coming home at Christmas for the first time and saying to my mother and father, sitting on the edge of the bed, I just want to tell you I love you. My mother said, what are you telling us that for? I said, I'd just be with a bunch of guys who don't seem to love their parents. And I thought, it's a good thing if I tell you now. Well, I have a chance. Thank God and tell these believers, turn aside and thank them for the way that God has used, used them in your life, in your personal history. And move then, move then on to the global scene as well. Secondly, as we move on quickly, because time is going, um, uh, the writer here tells us to look around. And in verses 2 to 7, you have this beautiful uh, treatment, this decapitation of idolatry, uh, where the... the The worshippers of the idols in verse 2 in the nation say, where is their God? Disdaining, Dave prayed uh, about this earlier on, 
uh, disdaining believers. Our God is in heaven. Our answer is he does whatever he pleases him. In other words, he's sovereign. He's a God of power. Uh, he's in control. And then the writer explains the futility of idols in the next four verses. They have no personality. They're uh, inert. Um, they're made of, these idols are made of silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths. They cannot speak. Eyes cannot see, etc. They're not living like the God of the Bible. Now, many of us could just pass over that passage and say, well, uh, there aren't many idols like that in our culture. But uh, we need to watch out of it as believers. And I'm not being crit- critical of anybody here. I'm just saying, be careful in these areas. There was a Dutch member of parliament a few years ago called Bob Houtzwart, G-O-U-D-Z-W-A-R-D, who wrote a book called Idols of Our Time. And he picked out five idols. One of them surprised me. He said, the idol of guaranteed security, not wanting to be affected by any changes in life. Watch out for that one. But there were two others, I think he mentioned, or three that that I think are perhaps in many ways more pertinent. He warned against the idol of over-focusing on sexual fulfillment. As Malcolm Magridge said, sexual fulfillment um, uh, today is the mysticism of the master. It makes you feel as if you haven't had a sexual liaison with somebody. You're inferior in some way. No, not at all. But I'm not going to get into that one now. Just to say that's, that was one of his areas. The other two which intrigued me were the dangers of, nas- of materialism and nationalism. It's very easy to fall into the habit of just becoming materialistic, just like other people in our culture. Obsessed with accumulation and never satisfied. As one writer famously wrote recently, what is a materialist? The man who has the most toys when he dies. And that's a danger that we need to be careful of. Because it can squeeze out the biblical emphasis on stewardship. Giving to those who are needy. The kind of question we need to ask ourselves to avoid the danger of materialism. I'm not talking about accumulation of wealth here. Because often God blesses uh, believers. But we just need to be careful. There's a subtlety here of over-obsession. Over with uh, material goods. The question we need to ask ourselves is not how much, of, how much of my money will I give to God? It's a much more radical one. How much of God's money will I keep for myself? And another question we could ask ourselves is do we ever give funds either regularly or spontaneously to the needs of other believers especially? Now, when we do that, it brings a different perspective in life, I would say, too. It brings joy. For one thing, we be, and it gives us perspective because we begin to see there are other people, including believers, probably in Cardiff and certainly in Wales, who are much worse off financially than we are. And it's, there's a degree of spiritual sensitivity if we are looking out always for those who are needy. First of all, the household of faith, frankly, the Bible says... We should be concerned for the household of faith, uh, but also in our congregations and further afield and believers in other parts of the world who are struggling uh, financially. The other challenge in our own day, and it's reared its head certainly in Russia and Ukraine at the moment, is the danger of nationalism. Now, people may disagree with my interpretation. I think it's perfectly okay to be a patriot. I absolutely love being Welsh. 
Um, but my concern for the expansion of God's kingdom is greater than my love of Wales. And it's really important, I think, that we all uh, think in those terms. For example, I have more in common with English or Chinese or Zimbabwean or Rwandan believers than I do with Welsh pagans. Because in the scriptures, what God seems to be concerned about is the expansion of his kingdom. Not of any one nation. It's perfectly okay to love our nation. If you look at Nehemiah, his prayer in Nehemiah chapter 1 was influenced by his desire for God's glory and his own people. So should we. It's perfectly right we should pray for our own culture, for revival and so on. That's why I want to give the rest of my life to engaging in evangelism in Wales, principally. Because I love my own culture. I don't think God placed me here by mistake. But we need to be very careful we don't fall into the trap of of wholesalely being critical of other cultures because they're different, especially when there are believers there. You know, the Russians are deeply indebted to the Ukrainians. I remember going there uh, 10 years ago. I've been to Ukraine four times and Russia four times too. And I was meeting, I was speaking at this uh, conference for 700 Russian pastors. And the first evening, uh, I asked them, um, can you describe to me the size of the church? And they said, well, there were about 80,000 believers here in 1990. There may be 800,000 now. The students told me they probably doubled that, a bit over the top. But even if it's half, it's significant growth. So I said, how would you account for the growth of the church in Russia since 1990 to 2010 when I was there? They said, you'd be amazed at what's happened, Lindsay. Uh, we had a lot of Western evangelists coming in from Britain and North America. They had very little impact do you know how God blessed the church in Russia? When Stalin was in power, most of the believers in the Soviet Union were Ukrainians. He scattered them all over Russia and the other states to try and weaken the church in Ukraine. Many of them took humble jobs. What happened when the door opened in 1989-90? These Ukrainian believers started churches in villages and towns wherever they were. And the strength of the church in Russia at that time in 2010 was largely due to the impact of the Ukrainian uh, people who had been pushed all over uh, uh, Russia by Stalin. So we, they said when some of our, these Ukrainian pastors were being put in prison or they were in Siberia, some of them died there, we asked, what is God doing? Then we realized God is in his heaven. Years later, as they were planting churches, and we, it was like a penny dropping, we saw, ah, Stalin thought he was destroying the church, but God was preparing for a day 30, 40 years later when these very people and their children would pioneer, pioneer the church across Russia. So many leaders in Russia today in the church are deeply indebted to the Ukrainian church. Similarly, we are indebted to other believers who have come across the border or from elsewhere who have served alongside us. So the question we, are, we, we need to ask ourselves is, do I love other believers in other countries as much, if not more so, than the people of my own country? Because it's clear, it seems to me across scripture, you can challenge me afterwards if you want to, that God's concern is for the growth of his kingdom transnationally across the world. And that must be our focus to some extent. Even if God calls us just to serve primarily or uniquely here in Wales. The other challenge of our day is secularism and pluralism. 
And that's really the biggest challenge facing us in our schools and in our system. We're fighting those kind of battles now, and it will become much more difficult. We should pray for them, for teachers uh, and parent governors in schools in due course because of the impact of pluralism within our cultures, which plays down or denies the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. And the writer's answer to that is in verse 9, trust exclusively in him, he says. All you Israelites, trust in the Lord. Then, by, by way of conclusion, let me just touch briefly on the last section where he says, don't just look back, because that gives you your rootedness and your awareness of the power and sovereignty of God. All look around at the challenges we face. Some of them seem insurmountable, and there's increasing, perhaps, hostility going to occur within our culture. But look up and forward. And the writer just gives three exhortations in that respect, to conclude for us. First of all, we are in a battle. Trust in God. And then he says, God is our help and our shield. And he repeats it three times. You know, sometimes you don't pick something up first time around. Maybe that's why they ask us to preach two sermons on Sunday morning. So some people can hear it a second time, particularly the pastor if he's around. Here the writer repeats this phrase, hitting it home. And actually the Pharisees were like this too, in the, or the Jews in the New Testament. They, they didn't hit many points. They hit one point, bang, 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 bang. Spurgeon used to say this too, that it's not a question of points scattered. You've got to hit one nail and hit it repeatedly until it's really hitting home. And that's why the writer here says, trust in the Lord for he is their help and shield, verse 9. He is their help and shield, verse 10. He is their help and shield, verse 11. Get it? And it doesn't just apply to the Israelites in the Old Testament. But to us today, that we are not alone facing battles in the world of education, or in the political world, or in medicine, or ethical challenges that many other believers might not understand that we're facing. God understands, and we are not alone. He promises to be our help, and our shield, and our call is to trust in him and look to him. For help, especially to negotiate some ethical and moral and other issues which are really difficult to grapple with. And there doesn't always seem to be a simplistic answer. But we are called to grapple with these issues, trusting in God as our help and shield and drawing on his help. Secondly, the writer says, he will bless those who fear him. And I love this verse. It relates back uh, that's uh, verse 13, relates back to what we were saying about student work not being the primary or the only ministry. May the Lord cause you to flourish, both you and your children. That's a great prayer for parents, by the way. Lord, please cause my children to flourish more than me. What a wonderful prayer for a father or mother to pray. Lord, help them to do better than I did. Help them to go further than I did. Help them to flourish. If I have grandchildren, cause them to flourish, Lord. Not to be weighed down. It's a beautiful word, flourish. May you be blessed by the maker of heaven and earth. And he goes on to say, um, he blesses those who fear him, great and small. Great and small alike. I love that verse in verse 13. So the danger is, for example, if we focus on student work this morning, some people feel, oh, that's more important. Uh, what I'm doing is not very, very important. I'm a, a junior school teacher or a primary school teacher or I'm a carer or whatever. 
Nonsense. There's no, not this notion in scripture. God will bless the great and the small. The smallest of the small. You may feel you're the weakest saint in the history of the church. But God wishes to bless his people. Get that inside your brain and ask God to fulfill that promise. Lord, I am not great. I am amongst the smallest. But you have said in your word that you will bless the great and the small. Please bless me as I seek to serve you. And then the last thing in conclusion that he says in uh, verse 17 and 18. It's a reminder of our fragility and our mortality. It's not the dead who praise the Lord, those who go down to the place of silence. It's we who extol the Lord both now and forevermore. What the writer is getting at here is life is short. There's that famous little epithet. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So our life is to have purpose when built on the promises of God and the person of Christ. We are to serve him in the here and now. I must close, but on my desk at home, I have a, a life motto, which is not a quote from scripture. It's a quote from John Wesley, who taught in the college I studied in many, many, well, 300 years ago. And towards the end of his life, he wrote a beautiful thing in his diaries. I, I wrote, read his diaries because they were uh, in the uh, library, in the college I was in. And this beautiful statement I learned from Wesley, which I have on my desk at home, uh, which I read uh, every morning, actually, which reads like this. And he's thinking and writing about this towards the end of his life. Do all the good you can. By all the means you can. To all the people you can. In all the places you can. For as long as you ever can. To the glory of God. So that's why even if we use the term retirement. We should be very judicious and careful. Because the calling of all believers. Is to serve to the end. And finish the task. I still remember the words of Michael Green. The day before he died on the operating theater operating table phoning me I was speaking at a mission week in Dundee he said Lindsay I think I'm going to heaven tomorrow please speak at my funeral I think I finished the task that God gave me I want you to speak from 2 Timothy 4 where uh, Paul says I finished the task that's a good prayer for all of us we may not be salaried we may not be employed in the in the traditional sense but our calling is to discern whatever God wants us to do with our lives, however small or great it appears to be, and finish that task, including passing the baton on to the next generation, who may be our children, maybe our nephews or nieces, maybe our grandchildren. Don't miss them out. Pass the baton on and complete the task which God has given us. So look back, look around. Look upwards and forwards for God's help, our shield, our helper, our defender, our sovereign Lord. I'm just going to pray a brief prayer. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this psalm, which helps us to look back, help us to have an historical awareness, we pray. That even if we're not trained as historians, we know that all believers are to have a sense of history and be aware of your God's acts in history. Help us to look around 
and understand something of our world, not be overwhelmed by it or depressed by it, but recognize you've placed us here for a purpose. And you will empower us and you want to use us, even if we feel we are amongst the weakest of saints. We may not feel we are giants, but we believe that we can be used by you because your Holy Spirit uh, comes and indwells us. And then help us to look out and look up to you, our shield and our helper and our defender. And help us, each and every one of us, Lord, to make our lives count and to be encouragers of others so that their lives might count too for the glory of God and the advance of your kingdom, we pray it. Amen.